the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts along with Dr. Jim Grassi. He is the former chaplain of the San Francisco 49ers, former chaplain of the Oakland Raiders, has spent more than 45 years of professional experience in the world of outdoors and working with sports teams. That certainly lends him a very unique perspective on not just working with men, but on such things as morality and character building. And um, Jim, of course, has got a new book out called Guts, Grace, and Glory. And you talk a lot in the book, Jim, about this connection between the athletic prowess that is developed on the field. And, you know, it's interesting because professional sports these days seems to have a tremendous emphasis on team building, and you got to be all working together to move the ball down the field to make the touchdown. And yet, I wonder if just team building on its own, does that necessarily lead to men building? Um. The answer is it takes a man to show a man how to be a man. Mm. And we have some NFL coaches and their assistants, which are men of God that have great character, that are showing their men how to be a man. And consequently, by being a man and looking at this idea of unity, as uh, coming together in community and putting our distractions outside the locker room, putting our distractions where they belong is when you leave the, the, the team facility. If you want to use your platform as an NFL athlete, as a politician, as a business leader to talk about whatever that issue is fine but while you're inside let's keep focused and that's where the the coaches are having problems now building this concept of team because to be honest with you one of the coaches i'm working with right now is having major problems they're they're in the run for another potential chance at a super bowl trophy and they have all the players and all the uh, things in motion to do it and yet their team has been so distracted and so broken up that team fights and all kinds of stuff going on over this issue it's hard to build team when people have this attitude it's all about me which is contrary to what scripture teaches scripture teaches that we need to be unified that we need to think of others to respect others to have have the right spirit that we're supposed to be of one spirit of one mind and the coaches are striving the the good coaches to pull their teams together with that kind of attitude and yet the unity's not there and so consequently we see this year among a number of teams in football that why are they messing up like they are? Why are they so many offside penalties and all? These guys are distracted. They're coming out thinking they can just flip the switch when they hit the field, that they won't think about what just happened in a locker room, that they almost knocked the other guy out. They, they don't they think they won't think about that when in reality it comes back on the field. 
Does all of this, too, and I want to take a shift now in our conversation, Mm -hmm. does all of this, too, pretend to the notion that the decline in moral character and in that idea of being a role model is indicative of a real failure, a breakdown in the concept of discipleship and mentoring. And I know I I get into trouble when I head in this direction because people say, okay, now you're going to start the meddling and you're going to make some comments about the church here, Craig, and you're going to say something like, we don't do the job at discipleship that we should be doing. And if you were expecting me to say that, I have not disappointed you. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what I'm trying to say. And that part and parcel to the importance of discipleship is this concept of mentoring, whether we're talking about mentoring pro athletes on the field or fathers mentoring sons and daughters or older Christians mentoring younger Christians. It's all about working toward that common goal of fulfilling the great commandment, the great commission, and making sure that at the end, our lives are a role model. Our lives are a reflection of who Christ wants us to be. And it seems as if that, as a broader point, both in society as a whole and in the church in specific, We seem to be missing the mark on that big time. Well, as you know, Craig, out of my 13 books, about seven of them have been on discipleship. And my last two, The Spiritual Mentor and Building a Ministry of Spiritual Mentoring, I quite frankly attack the church. And not all churches, but the church has failed in its role, in my mind, to disciple men who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of their home. And consequently, we've got got off into social issues or we've gone off into other issues and we're not uh, taking our responsibility as a church church, in my mind, to disciple men in from a biblical perspective and understanding what discipleship is all about. And, uh, Jim, aren't those social issues that you speak of, and the political issues that we've been discussing mm-hmm. about, and the moral issue, don't all of those go back to a core, singular issue, and that is, at the heart, at the very center, the crux of the matter is a spiritual issue. That's that's right, and, and, and that the breakdown of the uh, moral and spiritual fiber in our community. I'm reminding you know my mentor for ten years was Chuck Swindoll, and I think he's given the best definition of character. It's in my book Guts, Grace, and Glory, and it says character is doing right on purpose. Uh, is the moral, ethical, and spiritual undergirding spiritual undergirding that rests on truth, that reinforces a life, and that resists the temptation to compromise. Mm -hmm. And today, I think too many of our churches are not talking about this issue of of compromise, are not talking about this issue of of having a strong um, spiritual understanding and biblical background to uh, help raise our children when 61% of our nation's kids will go to bed tonight without a biological father in the home. And in the inner cities where I came from, Oakland, that's 80%. 
we've lost us we've lost our innocence we've lost our focus in my mind as a country on those uh, spiritual values that we once cherished well and you know we we hear a lot about the moniker you sometimes see the kids with the wristbands um mm-hmm. wwjd Right. Which, uh, in, in my radio ignorance, I thought stood for call letters for radio station for the East Coast. <laughs> but it actually stands for what would Jesus do? And it's That's an important right. question to ask ourselves whenever we get into that crossroads mm-hmm. and we have an important decision to make. But I think beyond that, too, uh, WWDJ. Not a set of call letters for a radio station either, but rather, what would Dad do? There you go. I like that. And to think about the yeah. kind of mentoring and example setting. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you look at a family that's falling apart these days, yeah. and there is domestic violence, and there's abuse taking place, and maybe uh, you know, a wandering eye, and all of it that attends to a family that is falling apart at the seams, I will suggest to you that in almost every one of those cases, we will find one, if not both partners, both the husband and the wife, come from dysfunctional homes that have never seen proper role modeling of what a healthy marriage relationship looks like or healthy parenting looks like. And so as a result, they do the only thing that they know to do, and that is they kind of model intentionally or otherwise what they saw happen in their own childhood and so now that dysfunctionality continues on and and sadly not being able to as a young man say here I am I'm at a, a, a facing a moral dilemma I'm at this crossroads I have to make a decision what can I gain from my experience my knowledge and what I have witnessed and seen to, to aid me in making the right decision if you can't say to yourself, well, in this case, this is what my dad would have done, or in this case, my Bible tells me this is what Jesus would do, then is it any wonder that we see so many young people Mm -hmm. today lost and and, and hapless and hopeless out there? Uh, Man, you're dead on. Uh, Once again, Craig, I just love to do interviews with you because your insights are great, and I would take it a step further. I would say that those people that are asking that question instead of going to the church or instead of going to the Bible are going and looking at the sports figures or looking at Hollywood or looking at the political figures and saying, well, this is what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, they got away with this. This is how they handled abuse of women. This is how. And so they are the church. And this is why I'm so passionate. And forgive me if I'm just overly um, uh, articulating this point. This is where I think the church has lost their way, that we're not addressing these issues in the church. We ought to be addressing unity in the church. We ought to be addressing the fact that women are abused in our culture. We ought to be addressing the fact that there are out of 800,000 police officers, there's some bad apples in the bunch. There's some people that aren't relating to minority groups the way they should. There are politicians who are not connecting with disadvantaged cultures and people that don't have jobs. I mean, these are conversations that we ought to have. And it comes back to being unified. And it doesn't mean that we have to give up our heritage, give up our personality, or the uniqueness in Christ. 
it does mean that we seek to be unifiers and peacemakers before seeking the selfish personal desires that seem to uh, disrespect and disenfranchise others. It means that we love others as we love ourselves. And that's what's said in Romans 12. And I like it so well what Paul said, wrote to the Romans. He said we're to love ourselves, which a lot of people today do not feel good about themselves for a number of reasons. And, boy, we need to reach out to those folks, too, you know. And it says we're to love ourselves, but we're to love others. And we're not to think too highly of ourselves. And yet that very thing is what I see in sports today, not just football. But these men have... A, uh, for some reason, they have a bigger uh, self-image of, and self-importance of their role in society than, than, quite frankly, they ought to have. And the area where they should recognize the role that they have in society with a sense of gravitas, they completely dismiss. And we'll talk about that when we come back. Dr. Jim Grassi with us today in studio. Information on the web about his ministry at mensministrycatalyst.org. O-R-G. That's mensministrycatalyst.org. A timeout back with some closing comments with Dr. Jim Grassi as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are back. And again, as we head into the home stretch of our conversation, I want to share with you information. Jim's latest book, Guts, Grace, and Glory, you can get it through, I guess, the usual suspects, Amazon.com. Amazon's the best way to get it now. And, of course, information about his ministry on the web, available at mensministrycatalyst.org. That's mensministrycatalyst.org. Jim, as you've probably heard, has worked as a chaplain. He served as a chaplain for both the San Francisco 49ers and the Oakland Raiders, born and raised right here in the Bay Area in the East Bay in Oakland and uh, written a number of award-winning books. Again, that latest book, Guts, Grace, and Glory. You can check that out through Amazon.com or through his website at mensministrycatalyst.org. You mentioned, Jim, before the break about the sense that sometimes uh, some of our players think in a haughty fashion more of themselves than they should. And yet, ironically so, there's also the argument that says, and where they should think highly of themselves because of the role model position that they are in, whether they signed up for it or not, because right. of the influential platform that they have been granted, oftentimes completely disregard that. We spoke before our exactly. broadcast began today about the three collegiate players mm-hmm. who were in China as the president is on a 12-day overseas visit to Asia, who has embarrassed themselves, the president, and the country by being arrested by communist authorities for shoplifting. And, of course, China, they don't play. These kids are going to probably wind up spending a little time in jail, I would suspect, before it's all said and done. Uh, China will take advantage of the opportunity to make a example out of these young men. And the sad thing is... As China's about to make an example out of them, it's too bad that they didn't think first about the example they should have been setting by not engaging in this kind of behavior. Once again, indicative, I think, of the disconnect that we're seeing, mm-hmm. that that leadership role that they're in, that the opportunity and responsibility of properly mentoring young boys and girls who are looking up to these sports figures right. is totally lost on them. Exactly. And that's why I remind athletes, your name, your family name is on your back. 
Hmm. You're carrying your your family name on your shoulders. You have a responsibility. Whether you ask for it or not, it is there. You have a responsibility. If you're going to accept that paycheck, you have a responsibility. Today, it was reported that the NFL is losing about $200 million in direct revenues from this whole fiasco. And again, I come back to the comments we talked about. We need to think about team. We need to think about uh, unity and less about self. And that isn't to say that, again, neither you or I are, are talking about disregarding the issues that are driving some of this. There needs to be discourse on that. Absolutely. There needs to be conversation. There needs to be a unifying and bringing together of races, of the political parties and whatnot, if we're going to have a strong country because we've lost respect globally. Uh, as I travel uh, in other countries, and you have too, I'm sure, we don't have the same respect as a nation as we once had. And because we don't respect ourselves, again, coming back to Romans, it says we're to love ourselves, Romans 12, and that we're to love others. And I love the way uh, Paul, in his letter to uh, the Ephesians, put it in chapter 4 about he urging us to live life in a worthy manner, worthy of our calling, it says. And then he goes on to say, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Mm -hmm. Through the bond of peace. And we've lost a sense of that peace in this country. Um, Yesterday, when I came into town, I have a a, a kind of a, a thing when I'm out in a restaurant I don't make any show about it or anything, but we we say grace, my wife and I. And most often I'll say to the waitress, uh, after she's taken her order, uh, we're going to pray for our food. Is there anything I can pray for you for? And she literally welled up in tears and grabbed her hands, and she said, will you please pray for peace? Wow. With all that's going on in our nation. Here's probably some single parent mom trying to make a paycheck. And with all the stuff, she's in a, a, a very a divisive community there uh, from a, a, a race standpoint. And she just feels the tension. She feels the pressure. She's very distraught. She said, well, you just pray for peace. And that's what Paul's talking about. That's what Christ talked about, is to look to peace. And I submit to you, if we took all the energies and efforts that everyone's thinking about trying to make a statement in the end zone or a statement uh, during the anthem or a statement this, we took all that energy and the resources from those men and owners and put it into a pot and stir that pot up what we could do to better this country. Well, and, and coming back to the core underlying issue, And that is, and you touched on this, we see this as a social issue, we see this as a political issue, we're failing at the core to see this for what it really is, and that is a spiritual issue. That's right. More specifically put, a sin issue, and if we want to eradicate and reduce acts of racism, we've got to go where the heart is. 
We need to see a change in heart. We need to eliminate sin because at the core, it is sin that is producing this. All that we see in this tension and in, in the underlying, just bubbling below the surface anger and angst that's out there is all the byproduct of sin. And so that's where this comes back full circle, that this is not a job for the NFL. This is not a job for Colin Kaepernick. This is not a job for the the NFL players or the NFL owners. This is a job for the church. That's right. We need to get on the front line and start talking about the real issues here. And you've used the word distraction several times, Jim, and it's very true. This has created a distraction from the real problem at foot. And the real problem at foot is man's fallen nature, the impact of sin, and our separation from God. And if the church will wake up to our responsibility, that instead of protesting, we need to be out there proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and talking about the fact that racism is a byproduct of sin. And if we address the basic sin nature through Jesus Christ and man experiences a heart change, guess what? Society will change. Attitudes will change. The unity will come together and we will achieve that peace that that waitress was asking you to pray about. But the peace doesn't happen just because we have a conference at the U.N. uh, or say, let's all sing a song together. Peace happens when we have an encounter with Jesus Christ, and suddenly now that peace is a byproduct of a relationship with very God himself. That's the crux of the matter. That's really where the solution to this problem lies. And sadly, we're talking about everything else, but what we really need to be talking about. Well, you're spot on again, Craig, because the original sin that caused this world to fall was a sin of pride, correct? Mm -hmm. It was, uh, I want to be a god. Cain and Abel. Yeah, and and, and Cain and Abel was a byproduct of Adam and Eve, uh, who was broken. But they wanted to be like God. That's pride, okay? And it comes back again to this unity thing, you and I. See, it, it's people saying it's all about me. This this generation, this culture we're in today, it's about me. I want to feel good. No, I don't want to let you cut in, even though you've had your signal on for a mile to get over in a lane here on the Nimitz Freeway. No, no, no. It's about me getting ahead of you. It, it's about me wanting the best food to be first in line. It's about me wanting to display whatever it is out on that field in front of the television cameras, rather than think about what would God want us to do to show unity, to show team, to show that we're of one spirit and of one mind. Jim Grassi, as always, we appreciate uh, the time and the insights that you bring to the program. Again, I'll mention his new book, Guts, Grace, and Glory, available through Amazon.com. And again, information available about his ministry on the web at mensministrycatalyst.org. That's mensministrycatalyst.org. Do you still do conferences and speaking engagements? So if somebody eavesdropping says, you know what, I like the cut of this guy's jib, I'd love (laughs) to have him come in and share maybe at a men's conference, uh, they can reach you through the website? We're a nationwide ministry. 
ministry, and I still do a lot of men's retreats and uh, a variety of speaking in churches on a numer- numerous topics, and uh, would enjoy the opportunity to be called and considered for an opportunity to speak at their church or at their men's event. Excellent. Again, details available on the web at mensministrycatalyst.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you Google demise of Detroit, Jarrell and I were just talking about this during the break. The photographs of the destruction of once was a great, proud, and glorious city is alarming. It is shocking. It is dismaying at so many levels. You know, the population of Detroit today is barely 702,000. At its peak, it was over a million, 900,000 strong. The number of vacant, dilapidated, empty buildings, the amount of erosion that has taken place to the heart of that city is startling. And oddly, as much as we look at Detroit and the demise of its architecture, it kind of sets up a visual picture of what's been going on in our nation's moral, familial, and spiritual infrastructure as well. You know, out here in California, we talk about how the West was won back in the 1800s. Now it seems as if so much of the West, collectively speaking, the Western world, is being lost. In fact, How the West Really Lost God is the title of a new book by best-selling author Mary Eberstadt. And Mary, thank you for taking time to be with us tonight. Mary, by the way, Senior Fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy, and um, we appreciate so much you taking a couple of moments to be with us. Oh, thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me. Boy, this this demise of what we used to know as our nation, and I think anybody who, who spends any time in God's Word and any time reading the newspaper uh, or watching the news has got to see it all around us, as much as we've seen the evidence of the horrific decay of what once was a, a great and proud city called Detroit. A lot of that's going on in the family and in, quite frankly, the church today in the West, too, isn't it? Well, it is. If you look at the news cycle just from the past couple of weeks and you see all of these horror stories, that's just the latest example of what I think speaks to a lot of people. A lot of people want to know, well, what what happened to God? Uh, What happened to God-fearing people? And they are right to wonder that question, because if you look at statistics from Western Europe, for example, you see a sharp fall-off in uh, church attendance over the last few decades. In the United States, although it's more religious than Europe still, you see a rise in the number of people in their 20s who say that they are none of the above, no religious affiliation. So this idea of secularization or Christian decline, depending on how you want to put it, is real. Um, But the question is, what's causing it? Since the Enlightenment, we've had a secular answer to that question, and that is, well, you can expect Christianity to decline because it's what Karl Marx called the opiate of the masses. It's a a superstitious bundle of beliefs that will go away as people get more rational and more educated. And this is what a lot of sophisticated people think, including now. But this storyline isn't right, Craig. It doesn't hold up when you put it against the data. It's not the case that the better educated you are, the less likely you are to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, in the United States, uh, there's data that shows the opposite, that as you go up the socioeconomic ladder, people are more likely to believe in God and to go to church. The same was true in Victorian London. That's another example I cite in the book. 
So it's not the case that education alone drives out God. And same with prosperity. It's not prosperity alone that drives out God. There are plenty of prosperous Christians all over the world. So something else is going on in Western secularization, and that's what I'm trying to get at in the book, because I think the answer amounts to two words, the family. Well, and let's talk about that, because there is sort of this chicken or egg, which came first scenario set up here. I mean, we certainly recognize that there has been a significant decline in, in faith, specifically Christianity uh, in the West. And I think logically we could conclude that as people are less inclined to follow a, a strict belief system that will dictate or somehow lend direction to their behavior concerning things such as uh, children outside of marriage, uh, divorce, uh, abortion, things of this sort, that there's certainly a a strong connection there. Uh, Then, too, I think we could also argue that there is a a sense of support between uh, the family and how that as the family falls apart, we're less inclined to go to church, we're not working Mm -hmm. together in, in kind of that harmonious unit anymore, that we're no longer than as actively participating in the church. So I guess it kind of comes down to which comes first. Does religious decline lead to the disintegration of the family? Does family decline lead to religious disintegration, or is it a bit of both? Well, I think it's both. But the point is that the conventional way of looking at this is to say, well, first comes religious decline as people sort of sit in the corner one by one and decide that, they have a problem with this part of scripture or that part or that it's not reasonable to believe in the bible and then comes the decline of the family this is how conventional sociologists tell the story but my point is there's something else going on here which is that family decline encourages religious decline and let let me just give you a few examples of what i mean by that because there are things that everybody can understand so we live in a time when many millions of households don't have a dad in the home for example We've seen this incredible rise in um, fatherless households. Now, if you're the child of a household like that, I think you have to make an extra conceptual leap to understand this very basic Christian idea of God as a benevolent, loving father. Mm -hmm. Because if you've never known a benevolent, loving father, that's an idea that's foreign to you. So that's just one example of how the way we live now in fractured and atomistic families can put an extra barrier in between an individual and religious belief. None of that is to say that folks from broken homes can't become, you know, perfectly religious people, but it is to say we have new impediments to that leap that didn't used to exist. So similarly, the Christian story is saturated with family imagery and family ideas uh, from the get-go. I mean, this is a religion that's starts with the, uh, the miraculous birth of a baby. We live in a world with falling birth rates and smaller families. Many people grow to adulthood without ever having held a baby or taken care of a baby. Don't you think that makes it a little bit more uh, exotic or foreign to think that you could have this religious story that begins with a baby? So these are just some examples of what in the book I refer to as the phenomenon that Family illiteracy breeds religious illiteracy. So this is a two-way street. It's not just that religious decline leads to family decline. It's also that 
not living in extended natural families the way people have throughout history up until very recently puts new barriers in the way of religious belief. Well, most certainly so. I mean, you think, for example, about the redefining of the family unit these days, that, for example, where uh, certainly when I was growing up, uh, mom and dad took you to church. We went together as a family and participated as a family in, in uh, you know, religious services and so forth. I, I think you could argue today that, well, a lot of parents as a single parent would say, I don't have time for that. You know, I'm working two jobs and i got to raise five or six kids, whatever the number might be. And so uh, spending copious amount of times at church is oftentimes the furthest thing on their mind. So is it any wonder that they're, number one, not seeing the model the way God designed it? Number two, there's not a motivation that would set up the mentoring necessary that would do provide the role model to understand, hey, there's benefits to all of this. And when I grow up and someday have a family of my own, I wish to continue these self-same traditions. So is it any wonder that I think there's a very strong connectivity, as you're suggesting? Yes, and continuing those traditions is a big part of it. This is something else I talk about in the book. You know, a lot of people uh, say, well, it's not that God has disappeared from Western society. It's that people have gotten more spiritual. They're into different kinds of practices, New Age practices, etc. So they're still spiritual. They're still sort of religious. And I'm not saying they aren't, but what I am observing is that if you read the studies, you see that those are not people who pass down their faith to their children. Those kinds of things don't get transmitted through the generations, and part of the reason is that, for whatever reason, it is traditionally religious people who tend to have children in this country, and not just in this country, but across uh, Europe and Israel and uh, pretty much every place that it's been studied. For whatever reason, secular people have no families or small families. So what you see over time is that what gets passed down through families and families of size is traditional religion and not these variations. So non-traditional households uh, you know, might go to church and regard themselves as Christians, but they're not likely to pass on the traditions of Christianity to their children and their grandchildren. And well, that's a really uh, interesting phenomenon. And, and the other thing, too, we can make an interesting uh, contrast and comparison here with the rise of the spread of Islam around the world and seeing that largely most of that is happening, certainly not because of their effective evangelism tools, but rather because of the birth rate and the emphasis on the family, the family unit, and uh, procreating at large levels in order to increase the size and the influence and therefore the impact of Islam across the world. So they understand this, and this is something that for a long time, certainly in in Western Europe, uh, with uh, emphasis on procreation uh, within the church, helped grow the church's numbers as well. We're taking a look at fascinating new book called How the West Really Lost God. Mary Eberstadt, the best-selling author, is with us today. Uh, the new book, by the way, published by Templeton Press, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through um, the usual suspects like Amazon.com. Mary, by the way, is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and we're going to come back to more of this question as we talk about many of the things that have happened to undermine Christianity in the West, and most importantly, wrestles through the question, is there anything we can do to stop this decline, or is this something that's simply inevitable, as much as we might anticipate it, looking at the decline of what was happening to the Roman Empire, that eventually this is just the way things are going to be, do you think? Come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mary Eberstadt is with us tonight. We are talking about her new book, How the West Really Lost God. And, you know, we're seeing this strong connection with a lot of things, too, in terms of just the shift in our thinking, aren't we, Mary? I mean, in, in terms of the, the, the rise of things like moral relativism, secular humanism, things of this side, which, sorry, which always kind of tend to take all of the kind of one by one dismantling the foundations of our faith, don't they? Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that the new atheists occupied the public square for a while, and between them and what's been going on uh, in, in this administration, you could argue that um, Christians have been taking something of a rhetorical beating out there. Um, but that does not mean that all hope is lost, and that's actually part of why I wrote the book, because I think there are a lot of things going on that point the way to a religious and with it a family revival down the road. How do we go about affecting that? I mean, as much as we recognize that there is a significant atrophy going on to not only the spiritual strength of America, but the West in general, and I think it's fair to include Europe in this, uh, and then to the, the demise of the American family. We mentioned here at the start of our conversation, Mary, uh, the, such things as the high rate of abortion, divorce in our country, single parents. You know that 70% of the births in the city of Detroit today are all to unwedded mothers. So looking at this, what can we do to help stem the tide or reverse this slow apparent march toward the eventual destruction of Western society and civilization? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons, Craig, why I'm an optimist about this. Um, First of all, in the book, the first thing I try to do is get rid of this idea that I think is the most prevalent idea uh, describing religious decline, this Enlightenment idea that Christianity's eventual demise is inevitable, that as people get smarter and richer, they will decide that they can jettison this thing. This is not what has happened. The data don't show it. The timeline doesn't show it. So it's really important to understand, first of all, that the idea of inevitable decline has been contradicted by the facts. That in itself is grounds for optimism, I think. The second thing I think is really interesting is the relationship between Christian decline and the welfare states of the West. For many decades now, we've had these gigantic welfare states telling us that they can be counted upon to act as family substitutes. If you remember the the Julia video that was part of the re-election campaign of President Obama, that one about the young woman who is helped from cradle to grave by the welfare state from daycare to old age, that's an example of what I'm talking about. This promise has been out there, but if we look at what the welfare states of the West uh, are doing now, if we even read the financial pages as as laymen and laywomen, we see that these states are in incredible financial trouble. We see that the shrinking of the family and the fracturing of the family has put incredible burdens on the welfare state, picking up the pieces and bankrolling the fractured families of the West. And we see that down the road they are unsustainable because there are not enough taxpayers to go around. It's really as simple as that. It's more obvious in Western Europe than in America quite yet. But we are headed in the same direction, just as we were headed in the same direction with rates of family fracture and rates of secularization. So the point is, when the welfare states of the West are revealed to be incapable of keeping the promises that they have made, people are going to do what people always do in times of adversity. They go home. 
they go to church, they look for those elemental organic connections of what's nearest to them. We saw this after 9-11, when many millions of people who had not been in church in a long time suddenly showed up and it was standing room only in the churches for uh, weeks and months after that event. I'm sure you remember that, too, because it was countrywide. Of course. That's an example of how real shocks to the societal system have a way of putting people back in touch with their roots. And for that reason, I think you can argue that down the road, out of the the uh, curtailing of the welfare state or a more realistic understanding of the welfare state, you can actually see the seeds of family and religious revival. Sadly, though, a lot of this comes on the heels, as you suggest, when we've gone through some sort of a major crisis that kind of pulls us together, causes us to reevaluate our priorities, rethink the direction of our lives. It happened uh, certainly in Sandy Hook. It happened after 9-11. So at the end of the day, is it maybe things such as the current moral, political, economic crisis that in a sense might sadly create the groundwork for spiritual revival in the West? Yes, but I don't think it has to be catastrophic necessarily. Um, one of the things I, I note with interest is that in 2008, during the uh, economic crash then, a couple of interesting things happened that weren't much talked about. But one was the, the return of adult children to the homes of their parents because they couldn't afford to move out on their own. To the extent that this was noticed, people thought it was a bad thing, um, You know that they should have had the money somehow to move out on their own. But I see a silver lining in that, which is the unintentional reinvigoration of the extended family. And I always talk about extended family, not nuclear family. Nuclear family is, a, I think, too constricting a term. I think it holds people to too, too strict a standard. But the extended family, the idea of a family that goes through the generations and is connected in all kinds of different ways, I think we did see the reinvigoration of that kind of family on account of the downturn in 2008. Also in 2008, the divorce rate dropped. Now that's a really interesting thing. And divorce lawyers themselves said that they thought it dropped because adversity made people think twice about um, something that's expensive and difficult like divorce. So I do think also that over time people are rational creatures, that the, the toll the various kinds of tolls of the ways that we live now that are so different from the way our ancestors lived uh, will be taken account of, and that people of the future will have a more expansive understanding and a more appreciative understanding, perhaps, of the benefits of the extended family than we have today. So I see all kinds of grounds for hope out there. It's always sad, though, when we have to... um realize what we have once we come close to losing it. Uh, But maybe as you suggest Mary, hopefully as we kind of get the clarion call out there, the word of warning, call the attention of folks that those that have an ear to hear, that can hear what the Lord is saying to his church uh, can rise up and respond and help stem the tide. It's a fascinating read and one I would recommend, How the West Really Lost God. Mary Eberstadt is its author and our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, the book is published by Templeton and you can get it online uh, certainly through Amazon.com also, Mary has a website, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. It's also the title of the book. Easy to remember, HowTheWestReallyLostGod.com. And it is, um, it's an important indictment, and I think one that we need to take to heart quite seriously. Our thanks to uh, Mary Eberstadt for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Let's leave the next generation a better world. Remember, we are called to be salt and light. AM 1100 KFAX San Francisco. Or find us at oneplace.com. Sponsored by Hill. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.